Hello and welcome to the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Jackie Broadhead. And I'm Rob McNeil. Hi Rob, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about return migration or forced return migration. And we've got a bunch of guests who are going to be talking about this in some really interesting and very different contexts. So part of it is looking at returns from the US to Mexico or to Latin America. And then the other part of it is talking to Matt Gibney, who's a professor in the Refugee Studies Centre here, about his theory that we should essentially perceive forced return migration as a form of forced migration, essentially, and that that should change the way that we perceive how deportations and removals of that nature are seen. Yeah, I think it was such an interesting conversation because... It reminded me of our conversation about emigration, which is that we're so focused on immigration and receiving countries that we think about return, I think, as the end of a process. And what really comes through in the discussion, I think, is the interconnectedness between countries who are wanting to do a return and what it means to return. And we don't really, I think, think about that interconnectedness enough and the way that actually in a way immigration emigration forced return they are they are different sides of the same coin no i think that's absolutely right and i think one of the really interesting other things that came out of the conversation that we had that we're going to we're going to come up to in a minute is the idea that um this is a lot about power it's a lot about power dynamics and the differences between the wealth and influence of certain states um, and the states to which they are sending people. And that there's even a racialized component to this, quite an important racialized component to this. And I think that once you start investigating the issue in that sort of way, it does change the way that you see things like the current policies that we are looking at in the UK, such as the Rwanda policy and what's described as the illegal immigration bill that's, uh, that's sort of making its way through Parliament right now. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, Global inequality sits at the heart of so many of the discussions that we have around immigration. And yet this conversation really kind of foregrounded that to me. I was also really struck by how much we heard about the idea of kind of public services as being involved in return. So the difficulty people have in getting hold of identity documents. And it reminded me of the fact that now for some of our programmes in the in the UK, so the Ukrainian programme, for example, that money is coming out of the international development budget and that's being kind of drawn inwards rather than looking outwards into our kind of roles and responsibilities into the world and this conversation really made me reflect on that. Absolutely so I think probably now we should move on to uh, introducing our fantastic panel of guests today we've got uh, Guadalupe Chavez who's a DPhil candidate in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford uh, we've got Professor Matthew Gibney, who is Professor of Politics and Forced Migration from the University of Oxford, and he's the current director of the Refugee Studies Centre. And Maggie Laredo, who's a returnee um, from the US to Mexico and is now executive director of Otros Dreams on Acción, which is a non-profit organisation based in Mexico City, which provides services to returnees. Guadalupe, if we could just start with you. Today's podcast is about the implications and the impact of forced returns. So could you just outline the issue, both in terms of its scale and how it affects both people and societies? So the scale of forced returns um, in the US context, for example, from 2001 to 2020, approximately 6.3 million non-citizens were deported from the US. And out of these 6.3 million, an estimated 93% are citizens from Mexico. 
Deportation has detrimental impacts on families. And what we know is that once people return to Mexico, they encounter challenges when it comes to accessing their identity. It can range anywhere from a few weeks to maybe a year or so to gain access to their identity. Um, and without this access to identity, essentially they become undocumented in their own countries of origin. Matt, let's move over to you now. You've written a lot about the idea that deportation constitutes a form of forced migration. Can you explain what you mean by that and what the implications are? So when we think of forced migration, we normally think of refugees, we think of displaced people pushed out of their country of origin because of conflict or violence. But if we concentrate on the forced in migration, it's hard to think of any migration that's actually more forced than deportation. It's movement out of the state in the context of the threat of coercion. And it may actually involve physical coercion. Often when people are deported, they're shackled or handcuffed. Sometimes they are drugged. Um, they're detained before they do it. They are uh, chained to seats and they're accompanied by guards. So it's pretty obvious here that we are dealing with a form of forced migration. I think it's also like forced migration in terms of its consequences as well for the individuals and the communities which uh, receive them. First of all, it can often involve uprooting people from their real homes even if they're not actually their homes of citizenship, they may have been residents in the state from which they're deported for many, many years. They may have grown up in that state, entered as a young child, and that may effectively be the only state that they really know. So it's almost tantamount, uh, not legally, but morally, to deporting a member of that state, a citizen of that state. Secondly, deportation under these circumstances can have the consequence of, like forced migration, placing people in uh, effectively alien environments, forcing them into a new society with all its cultural norms, its language, the absence of connections that people have that can be very disorienting in those circumstances. Um, and thirdly, when deportation is carried out, on um, a level that is as large scale um, as some forms of deportation movement are back to um, uh, countries of uh, citizenship, then one can find that the receiving state is unprepared to uh, receive those people and finds it a financial challenge, finds it a social challenge, finds it a challenge in terms of security as well, in ways that are tantamount, in some respects, to states receiving large short-term movements of forced migrants. And I think when one thinks about it in that light, one gains a new perspective on what deportation actually involves and the way that often richer, northern, more uh, secure states are often implicated themselves in a form of forced movement. That's fascinating stuff, Matt. Maggie. You've got direct experience of this process and you've set up an organisation to support returnees in Mexico City. Could you um, tell us a little bit about your story and what you now do? 
Uh, as you mentioned, my own experience, I was born in Mexico. I grew up undocumented in the United States, in the southern part of the United States, which I think it's also important to say that there are very specific implications depending on the region where people live um, in the United States in this context. But um, I returned to Mexico in 2008 after finding out the implications of being undocumented. And I have been in Mexico for 15 years. And in this process, I mean, I've experienced a lot of what Guadalupe and Matthew have shared, but also in the last, I would say, eight years, I have become part of a growing community of people that were born in Mexico, grew up undocumented, and were or have and continue to face the challenges described. Um, and I think it's been really important to be on this side, to be uh, connecting with other folks, to be organizing, uh, and be organizing also across borders because the work that OZA, Otros Dreams and Acción as a grassroots nonprofit by and for people that have experienced the effects of deportation and forced return is also translocal. And it's also a community, a collective uh, work that we do to give visibility to the issues not only in Mexico after deportation or after folks are, are returning, but also the issues in the United States and our demands for mobility, for family reunification and for access to a dignified return. Can I just dig a little bit deeper there and just ask in specific terms, what kind of things are you actually doing to support people? Yes. So actually, when people uh, are deported or are going to return, uh, many times they'll reach out to us, even when they're in the detention center or if they're at the northern border of Mexico, uh, they'll reach out to us. And we have this organic model of accompanying folks. So one of the first things that we do when people reach out to us is to make sure that we're accompanying them uh, to access what they need, which many of the times, as Guadalupe mentioned, uh, identity documentation is one of the first barriers. So that is the first step um, in terms of helping them because or supporting them, because if you don't have access to identity, then you don't have access to other the uh, the rest of the services or the rest of the rights you have as a person. Um, after identity, we'll be accompanying them to access. Uh, many of them want to enroll in higher education or want to revalidate their U.S. studies, or many others want to uh, find a job or be able to generate some sort of income. Um, there's also family separation, as it was also mentioned, unfortunately, as one of the Last things, because it is so difficult to obtain, um, whether it is bringing your children from the United States or, or your spouse or figuring out a way to reunite families. We also support them with access to mental health, access to health in general. We have documented a lot of people um, have conditions that start while they're in detention centers and that they are caused by being in detention centers. So that is something that we have been emphasizing in the work that we do. Um, at the same time that we're accompanying folks, we also have a whole cultural and artistic area within the organization where we are encouraging people, uh, individuals to access and to join those spaces so that they can get to know other people and they can be able to talk in Spanglish, be able to talk about their experiences in the U.S., connect with other people, that that can also help us and and we're sort of going towards being more collective and community oriented so also building critique messages because many of the times folks arrive to our organization with a very individual 
uh, sort of narrative of, oh, they deported me because I did something wrong, because I didn't have a driver's license, for example. And then they come to the organization and we try to talk about the systemic effects of that deportation or that return and sort of bring it more collective and, and less and less individual. And then that will help us to do all of our advocacy work, which we do in Mexico, in the United States with federal, local government officials, but also with society in general to sort of try to dismantle these narratives that continue to hurt and these narratives that then become into policies that are actually really, really harmful for communities. That's incredible. Guadalupe, Maggie's told us about the activism, the support and the work to empower returnees that she's been working on in Mexico City. Similarly, we've had some work recently at Compass, a blog in particular, investigating the role of removals from the US in generating new forms of activism and political organisation among those people who've been otherwise effectively disempowered by the process. Can you tell us a bit more about how removal shapes individuals' political responses and engagement within political systems? This is a, a very important question. And I would say that the, the factors that shape individuals' responses and engagement with political systems vary in scope based on, on the conditions that trigger their return, the type of support networks they have when they return, um, the time they lived abroad also, because it has important implications as to what type of networks they have in the countries they formerly lived, age and gender are also crucial factors in here. Um, furthermore, um, more structural conditions also shape to what extent people can become politically engaged. Um, for example, this this certainly is the case if people are returning to very, very violent context, also very xenophobic context. There's often very negative associations when it comes to people that have been deported or that have been forced to return to their country of origin, as it is the case in Mexico. However, based on, on the field work that I have done in Mexico and my engagement with ODA, um, I think that the most important condition that has allowed people to become engaged and, and mobilize and make their demands heard is, as Maggie mentioned, community. Um, community allows people to, to realize that they're not the only ones going through a particular experience or a struggle. And community permits them to think collectively of the type of exchange um, they hope to see. Um, community also allows them to create knowledge and practices on how they want to transform oppressive systems. And I think this is something that makes ODA and, and a few other organizations that are um, supporting the deported community in Mexico very unique and very powerful in the sense that they're building community not only in Mexico City or only one particular context in Mexico, but across borders at, at a translocal level. Um, and uh, the broader implications of these demands and organizing that ODA is doing is that they're really um, mobilizing around an abolitionist framework that tries to really disrupt, um, as Maggie mentioned, these very um, violent narratives that we often see in immigrant social movements, like, for example, in the U.S., right? I think um, what ODA is doing is trying to disrupt these dichotomies between the deserving and undeserving migrant, which we see a lot in, in a lot of countries like the US, the UK, and even Germany, for example. So I think community is crucial when it comes to mobilization and making demands heard. So Matt, most of what we've discussed with Maggie and Guadalupe has been focused on the sort of complex relationships and power dynamics between Latin America and the US. Do you think that this paints a picture that captures common experiences in the global system? And if so, what can or should be done about it? 
That's a good question, Rob. Um, I think for a start, yes, these kinds of relationships or between uh, deporting countries and uh, receiving countries have grown up massively as there's been a deportation turn across northern countries over the last three decades or so. And it's also issued in various readmission agreements between uh, countries. The European Union has about 20 of those formal bilateral agreements and many other informal ones with countries. One could look at Australia, one could look at the UK, one could look at Canada and see very similar kinds of processes. And these have developed in the context of uh, returning asylum seekers back to countries of origin and the increasing criminalization of immigration and penalization and enlistment of deportation as a response to criminal wrongdoing and um, overstaying in those countries. Um, the power dynamics are kind of complicated here because they don't just lie with the deporting state in some respects. Uh, states that take uh, their citizens back can also have some power in these situations and try to exercise it. They might try to exercise it because they don't want to uh, take back the particular individuals involved. It could be an end to remittances. They could see their um, expulsion from a state as unjust, or they could see it as raising security issues itself. And that's why states, um, northern states, get involved in these kinds of readmission agreements. You could see them as a kind of mutual agreement between two states to make sure that the state in question um, facilitates the return of their citizens. And they are often linked to things like uh, development aid, opening up of visa opportunities. Um, in the case of the UK and Afghanistan, there was even an agreement to build a terminal at the Kabul airport. And so there are very kind of complicated relationships here where because Western states really want to deport people, they're in some respects also vulnerable to the countries of return as well. What could we do about it? Well, these are kind of, again, very complicated issues. Um, and they raise the question of whether deportation can be just generally. But obviously, we need to monitor the conditions under which people return and establish perhaps legal and political responsibility for those that are returned by the countries that uh, return them that lasts over time. So the conditions that deportees meet upon their return should be linked back to the deporting country. And if those conditions don't uh, reach certain standards, the deporting country should take the individual back. That's what I would say, that there's an ongoing moral and should be legal responsibility there. The second thing we can do is have, I think, something close to an absolute bar on returning people that have lived in the deporting state for a certain period of time or have grown up in those states. Because I think that in a context like that, you're talking about people that are effectively moral members of the state in question. They're just two suggestions uh, I would propose. So Maggie, I've got a similar, but perhaps a slightly more straightforward question for you. What needs to change 
and what do you think can make that change happen? Yeah, thank you for that question. I've been thinking a lot about it and I, I, I see it as the pieces of a puzzle, which I feel like there are several things that need to happen and not necessarily in a linear way. But I feel like it's really important to to shift these narratives that continue to criminalize uh, migration, these narratives that are causing all this harm, as I said earlier. But I feel and I think that it's also really important to follow the leadership of communities that are directly affected, that are generating all this knowledge, that are experts of their own experiences, but also of what needs to be changed. And I think that parallel to that, I do think that shifting these narratives and supporting communities that are organizing, allocating resources, um, following their leadership uh, from the academia, from large organizations, international organizations, how do we put in the center people that have been directly affected and we support by allocating resources so that they can be leading this is really important. And at the same time, that will take us to this other narrative and, and this action of we do need to end detention centers. We need to close detention centers and we need to end with deportation. Um, a lot of the work that Oda does, I mean, is not only supporting folks that are returning and, and, and fighting for those dignified conditions, but I think our end goal is to end those detentions, to end those deportations that are not justified, in my opinion, under any situation. Um, and also, I feel like a lot of the work that we also do is we support folks to be able to tell their own narratives. And, and they tell these narratives through films, through plays, through publications, through poetry, through all these mediums where we are insisting for folks to listen to these narratives and for folks to to see beyond the, the, the mainstream story that you hear on the news. And I think that's something that needs to happen. How are we supporting those narratives to be out there? And how are we also organizing, following the leadership of communities and putting the academia to the service of communities? Um, I think it's really important. So I see it, all these pieces, and, and I think it's hard to get the political will and to get um, all of the organizations and academia to work together. But I think once we do that and we are shifting those narratives and we are following the leadership of the real experts, we can get somewhere. Finally, I've got a question, which is how should states manage their populations and borders if they can't do things, if they can't remove people that they deem to be problematic in one way or another? So, Matt, you're a professor of these sorts of things. Give us your views on this. So it's clearly difficult to imagine border control as we know it without some kind of deportation or expulsion power. It's interesting perhaps here that even in the context of EU freedom of movement, under some circumstances, states were entitled to deport individuals who had committed crimes. They had to be very serious circumstances and they had to be an ongoing threat to uh, the state. So I suppose um, even if you're going to imagine the circumstances of free movement, unless you're going to give up on the idea that um, individuals are members of particular states, you're going to have something like deportation. That said, perhaps we can imagine a world where states can control the entry of people, but they can't deport them. Um, we could have a system like that, that kind of asymmetrical system. I think that that's not necessarily desirable um, because then states will put even more pressure or more effort into preventing arrivals 
in the first place. And I think that will reduce some of the great benefits we get from immigration and its circulation. And also we should note that dangers and human rights violations occur in people trying to enter the states as much as them being uh, deported from states as well. So it's, I mean, if you ask me, this is a very uh, tricky question. I suppose my position would be to heavily regulate deportation rather than get rid of it altogether. But there is a question of whether you can regulate it in such a way that it is um, effective while respecting the most basic uh, liberal norms. Maggie, Matt and Guadalupe, thank you so much for talking to us today. You've been listening to the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Jackie Broadhead. And I'm Rob McNeil.